Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome back to the program. This is part two of a two-part conversation with Wynn Collier, and we've been discussing his latest book, a work of fiction entitled Love Big Be Well. Wynn's other books include Restless Faith, Holy Curiosity, and Let God. His essays and articles have appeared in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, Relevant, and others. Wynn holds a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia, and he is a pastor at All Souls Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he lives with his wife, Miska, a spiritual director, and his two teenage boys. I wanted to share a little bit more of Wynn's own writing in terms of how he describes himself. He says, from the third grade, I wanted to be a writer. My mom gave me a ragged-out Brown Sanger typewriter, the kind traveling salesman would tote around in the 1940s. I began my first literary work, an autobiography, with the understated title, My Life. It was an eight-year-old sizzling narrative of dalliances, escapades, and wild living. Perhaps you've heard of it. I ran out of material after two paragraphs. Wynn goes on to write on his website in his bio, and this is a true story, I grew up in a fifth-wheel trailer, a country air built by Amish and Mennonite craftsmen in a factory in Indiana. Until the sixth grade, my family lived on the road, a different city or village most every week of the year. This nomadic life nurtured within a family who knew how to love provided me a gift, an experience of the diversity of land and place, the range of rascals and wide country you uniquely encounter if you hitch up the rig every Friday night. Years later, I would discover how hungry I am to experience people and place and story. And so I hope that you hear Wynn's heart and are encouraged as in our conversation, some of these very themes come through. So let's jump into part two of my conversation with Wynn Collier. So Wynn, in part one of our conversation, um, you had talked about spiritual mentors and people that you were able to sit with and have a cup of tea with, people that were really grounded but really human. And 
One of the people that endorsed your book was Eugene Peterson, who, of course, is uh, author of The Message and probably, what, 50 other books. And I just want to read his endorsement here because not only is it honoring to you, but it also says a lot more about the book, and I want people to read this book. But uh, Pastor Peterson said, this book is a tour de force, an angle on understanding the life of both congregation and pastor that exceeds anything I have ever read. No directions, no programs, just an immersion into what really takes place in the life of a congregation and a pastor. Win Collier's writing is alive. So, wow, those are some pretty big words. <laughs> it was sir, he was generous, wasn't he? You've had a, a chance over the years to to spend a fair amount of time with Eugene. What's that been like for you personally? It's been a a true gift. In many ways, I think of Eugene as my pastor. He's certainly, um, from a theological perspective, changed and challenged my understanding of pastoring more than any other person. Um, early on, you know, I was, I mean, there's lots of people who write to Eugene, lots of people who love him. And I was one of those annoying, you know, young pastors who bugged him, uh, until he, he, uh, spent some time with me. And over the years we have developed a friendship, but you know, it's interesting where my mind just went. I don't even know if this really is important to share, but it's just where my mind went because I is one of the things I've learned the most from Eugene is, is from the times when he's told me no, when I asked for something or wanted a, a space with him and he wasn't able to do it. He's always kind and generous, but um, there was something I needed in a period of my life to learn that it was okay to say no to things and to not, and to not meet someone's expectations. And I remember one particular scenario where I thought it was going to be the last time I would have a chance to see him. It didn't turn out to be that way, but it, it felt like it was going to be that. And I asked for some time and he just said, you know, I just, I'm not able to do that now. And I thought, you know, I probably will never see him again. And I remember how, how sad I was in the moment. But then I also I also felt something else was going on. I thought, you know, he he didn't seem apologetic <laughs> about this. He didn't he didn't seem like he is trying to soften the blow for me. And in that time in my life, I was really needing to learn that that posture is is a good posture to have. And um, so I've learned from him and and Jan too. I mean, his wife is amazing, and um, their whole family and. Uh, I can't say enough how much I admire and respect him. That's really cool. I, I got to spend uh, a couple hours with Jan and Eugene up in Vancouver when he was teaching at Regent when I interviewed him for the Mars Hill Review. I remember that. And I was, yeah, I was struck by how very, very ordinary they were. And, and that was 23 years ago. But, you know, they invited me up into their apartment and made French press coffee and, you know, for – 20 minutes asked me questions about me. And it was like, I, I feel like I'm, you know, sitting down with someone who is just an ordinary person. So that, that's so cool to me that that relationship has been able to develop. And I don't know if this is public information, but uh, it's my understanding that you are writing his biography. That's right. Um, started in January with the research for that. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to be his biographer. And so the, the title will be my friendship with Wynn or I think that's a good title. 
yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to scratch that down right now to try to, um, offer that to the publisher. When, uh, when will that be out? You know, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking it's going to be like two and a half or three years. It's going to be a good, good bit of, um, a research and then obviously the writing. Well, it's shifting gears, but this is a good segue. Um, I wrote, after I read your book, Restless Faith, I wrote my first ever review on Amazon. And I, I think that book came out uh, nine or ten years ago. Um, and so, you know, writing reviews on Amazon was still a pretty uh, rare thing, at least for me. And as I thought through just knowing you and your pastor's heart and your deafness with writing, I wrote this and I really meant it at the time that your writing really reminds me of Frederick Beekner, where your prose is just really gorgeous, but that that everything is working toward big ideas about grace and love and forgiveness and kind of looking into the heart and scratching beneath the surface. And um, so I, I look forward to you continuing to write and continuing to put your heart and your experience uh, on paper for people to be able to enjoy. And I think that you're the one, when that introduced me to the quote from uh, Kafka, who said uh, that a novel should be like an ice axe that breaks the frozen sea inside of us. Do you remember that quote? I love those lines. Yeah, so here you are writing a novel, and there's some things in the book that it's not confrontational in terms of like getting in your face, but just simple lines that that talk about love and, and simple lines that, as I read earlier in part one, uh, that we're massive screw-ups, and as Christians that we're the ones that are supposed to recognize that. You write uh, in one of the chapters, it's page 30 on my book, you said that love, Paul believed, keeps us at the center, very near to God. This kind of love has little in common with doe-eyed banalities. Real love sometimes manifests a fierce strength. Love restrains us when we're running toward ruin. And um, talk to me about feedback that you've gotten about this book, because it has this gentle back and forth with with the letters, uh, it seems to me that there's a a subversive element to it where it's touching people's hearts and lives in a very indirect way. I certainly hope so. You know, I think there's, not to beat this in the ground, but I just, I think there's a humanizing element that's possible via letters that's not possible in other, in other mediums. So, you know, an email blast is impersonal, but writing a letter is to to an individual person or an individual group of people, and and licking the envelope and scratching your name out at the bottom. I mean, that's a very personal thing. And so, I, I, my hope is that even in the form in which the book is, that there's something there's a something that exudes from it that sets us in a, a certain kind of space, allows us to hear the language in a different kind of way because of the form itself. And so, you know, I definitely have gotten better feedback on this than I have any of my previous books, which I will have to honestly say is a pretty low bar because um, none of my previous books did very well. But I think the thing that I've heard the most that gives me the deepest amount of gratitude is a number of people have told me I was only a couple pages in and I found tears. And, uh, you know, Mike, when, when, uh, 
I'm finding some of my own here. Um, when somebody can read something that came from your own heart and they hear it and it touches a place in their heart and tears come or whatever somebody's emotion might be like, that's just a really beautiful gift. And when I've gotten those notes about that or gotten someone to say that to me, I, I just, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that I would have the opportunity to pin something that would have that kind of meaning for someone else. You know, so when, when writers say, you know, I'm writing this just for me, it doesn't matter if anybody else ever reads it. I mean, I, I kind of get that, but a lot of times I want to call BS on that because I think most of us we're writing because we're wanting to offer something to the world. We're wanting it to have meaning. We're wanting it to, to make something more beautiful. We wanted to open up new spaces. And when someone tells me that they've, they've had some kind of interaction with this story or one of these characters in this way, it feels like that's a thin space and it's happening in a, in a story and how beautiful is that? And so those are the moments that I, I feel the deepest gratitude and responses I've gotten. That's amazing. I'm glad that you got to have that experience. And, and I, I really get that. And, uh, I, I'm just touched by the fact that you teared up by that. Cause I know that, that what you offer is hard won. Um, that as you've been on your journey and even as you referred to earlier, there've been some dark nights for you and you've courageously entered into those as a pastor, as opposed to, you know, ignoring it or, um, you know, walking away from hard seasons and hard conversations. And I think that's why the book is so rich and why people find themselves drawn to it, captivated by it, tearing up uh, even early on. Another question I have is this whole conversation about spirituality versus religion um, and organic versus programmatic and uh, becoming more human versus allowing or focusing on our, our religion to somehow help us transcend our humanity. Can that happen in church as we're typically doing it in the West and in the U.S.? That is a big question. Um, I'm going to say yes and no. I mean, it depends on probably what we mean by that. If we mean uh, a self-oriented organizational posture that is just attaching God's name to random ideas and trying to feel good about ourselves. I mean, I think the Holy Spirit would have a pretty hard time breaking in on that. I'm returning more and more to older ways of doing church rather than trying to find newer ways. I've actually gotten quite exhausted by the questions of what new way do we need to do church? Um, because at least in the conversations I'm, I've been in, that usually is tapping into just more of the American entrepreneurial spirit. And it doesn't, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't do fresh things. I'm actually, I really think that the Holy Spirit obviously does, but I, I find myself drawn to what are the old, old prayers Christians have prayed for a really long time. What are the, how come to the table every Sunday and encounter the grace of the living God? I don't, I don't know how a spirituality centered in Jesus works if it's not centered around the table and baptism and the practice of praying prayers together on a, on a resurrection Sunday morning. And, um, so having said all that to me, it's about enlivening something rather than finding some new way, because 
I mean, if you open up some, even some of the old prayer books and you look at the language, I mean, there's a, a richness there that our best, um, our best contemporary prayers struggle to even come near. So, but having said all that, uh, I think what we're really hungry for is something that's alive. And I find a growing hunger for the spirit of God to, um, blow fresh wind into my own heart and into the heart of the people that I love. And, you know, this, as the Psalm says, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain to build it. I, I think as American Christians, we've done really good at figuring out ways to do church. And I think we need to spend a whole lot more time being attentive to how the Holy Spirit is already active in the church and among one another and trust that and give that enough space to breathe. And I think that will resurrect some things and definitely create some fresh winds, some fresh movements. Um, but somehow, somehow to me, it will have a different kind of feel than just attempting to find a new paradigm. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. So the new paradigm or program, which quote gets results, but those results might be temporary or questionable or superficial as opposed to something that grows deeper and, and more organic. I think anytime we think that we can map something out that's going to get us somewhere, we're probably on the wrong road because I think we don't even know where we want to go. I think we need God to lead us there. And at the end of the day, we don't want to arrive in some place. We want the presence of God um, active in the actual world in which we live, active in our families, active in our neighborhoods, active in our marriages, active in our friendships, active in our politics, if that's even possible anymore. Um, and so uh, really hungering for God and somehow I think hungering for God is different than hungering for uh, a paradigm. And so I want to play devil's advocate here for a minute, just for you to be able to clarify, because I, I, I know you and what I hear in a lot of the conversation about church is oftentimes, uh, you know, big church, good, bad, or small church, bad, uh, because, you know, they're not, they're not taking advantage of things and they're not growing. Or small church, good, big church, bad. And last weekend, um, I was in uh, the southeast and I got to do a, a pastor's retreat for uh, the leadership of the church. And then on Sunday, uh, do a... Uh, speak and do a workshop. There's about 6,000 people at this church, and it's a magnificent structure with really extraordinary leadership. And there are some, I, I was just frankly blown away by the cool things happening in people's lives and in families and not just programs. So on the one hand, there's, there's something real and depth-oriented that can happen there. And on the other hand, I resonate with what you're saying about, you know, what is it that we're even working toward and we have to be attentive to the Holy Spirit and let's not just jump on the bandwagon. How do we live in that tension between programs that give results and that sense of an organic community uh, that may not be very sexy, if you will? Well, first of all, I think anytime we get stuck in a binary, you know, like, big, bad, little, good, or the reverse, little, bad, big, good. I mean, binaries are just inherently flawed. Um, God doesn't operate in that kind of binary. So I think that 
you know, we can just do away with that. And then we can just begin to ask, are we being faithful to whatever God's put in our hearts to do and to offer and to be? And we can trust. I mean, I'm so glad that every pastor is not like me. I mean, we are, the church would be even, even a greater disaster than it sometimes already is if, if every pastor were like me. And so the question isn't, you know, <laughs> um, what is the way to be a pastor? It's what is the way that God has created me to be a pastor? And what is the way that God has created our church to live together? And um, so I think we could just sort of let each other off the hook and we can all try to be faithful and trust that others are going to be faithful the best they know, and we're going to be faithful the best we know. And then, I mean, our church is a fairly small church. We probably have, you know, if everyone were there, which of course doesn't happen, but maybe 200, 250 people. And we have to have programs. I mean, we don't have a lot of them, but I mean, every family has to have a program. You have a time where you eat dinner, you have family chores. So I think sometimes we just get caught in this language that becomes sort of pejorative and I think the real question is, are we honestly opening our heart and our life to relationship with one another, to friendship? I mean, even the word community, I'm, I'm personally kind of tired of the word because it's another thing, another good word that we've beaten into the ground and I don't even know what it means anymore. And we talk, you know, we use, we have now these seminars where we're taught how to create community. I mean, you, you don't create community. It's a gift that comes and you receive it and then you try to nurture it and honor it and try to be it. And any more than I don't create uh, a family. I mean, God does that and I, it's a gift to me. And then I learn how to, how to nurture that. And so of course there are ways that we have to pursue a life well lived together. And I think we just do the best we can and figure out what those are and, and be nimble with them. And when they, when they don't work, then we, then we move on and figure out another way. And, but just to me, I think of it more in the metaphor of a family, like the same way at each season of life with our boys, they get older. Those things look different. The structure has to move and adjust. And I, I think a church community that's healthy is going to be the same way. Oh, uh, that's, that's so good. When speaking of community, um, you pastor and live in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, where the university of Virginia is. And of course that's where the the terrible uh, shooting was and the demonstration where people were killed. And I know that it's still pretty fresh for you, but what was that like for you as a pastor and for your church community? Yeah, it was a uh, really brutal, it, it um, I mean, culminated obviously when Heather Hires was run over by a car and two state police officers, their helicopter that they were u- being used that day um, went down in a crash. So three people ended up dying uh, but you know, for us, it wasn't a day. It had been a summer. There was a, a Klan rally in July. There was then the alt-right rally in August. It's still, it, I, I'm not even sure that now I would even somehow the word aftermath doesn't even quite sound right. It feels like something about this summer put us into a new era that we're now having to live through. And I've never seen evil so up close and in my face as that day. I've never seen um, such uh, humans scream such vile things at one another. I, it was so massively disorienting. Uh, it was tragic, sorrowful. One of the parks that was uh, once once the uh, 
the the rally got dispersed uh and groups began to go to separate areas one of the parks is not far from my house and um and it just continued there and it was just um i have this never experienced i think it's a day that will mark me the rest of my life but i will say that coming out of that i received a kind of clarity that i haven't had before and i believe in the kingdom of god more than i ever have because i saw on that day um how distinct the way of jesus is from every other power structure every other ideal every other ideology and how the kingdom of god is either a contrast or a corrective to every other human attempt to uh do justice and uh it made me more a believer in jesus and so it has spurred me to want to live more vibrantly in obedience to Christ and to see what it means for, for Jesus's kingdom to come. When thank you for those words and just taking a minute as we wrap up part two of our conversation here, just to talk about that and, and what, what good, good words, uh, just the reminder of the kingdom of God and your emphasis on Christ. So thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and I really uh, can't encourage our listeners enough to read, to check out, to buy a copy of, to download on Kindle, Love Big, Be Well, your newest book, Letters to a Small Town Church. So thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. Like always, I really enjoy talking with you. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 